It's time once again for the Go-Giver Podcast, where we explore five timeless principles that will increase the profitability of your business and the joy in your life. Now, here's your host, the co-author of The Go-Giver, Bob Berg. Hello, I'm Bob Berg. Welcome to our initial episode of the Go-Giver Podcast. I'm so glad you could join us. Today is the first of what I hope you'll continually find to be interesting and value-packed shows. You might or might not be familiar with the book that the name of this podcast is based on, The Go-Giver, co-authored by my great friend John David Mann and me. If you're not, absolutely no sweat. As a brief background, the book is a business parable that features a young business person, a salesperson who learns a very valuable lesson, and that is simply that shifting one's focus from getting to giving, giving in this context meaning constantly and consistently providing value to others, is both a nice way to live life and a very financially profitable way to do business. In the story, Joe learns five laws or principles that help him with this shift in focus. In a real sense, the ideas we explore in this podcast, not just this one, but everyone on our journey together, will have something to do with one or more of these five laws. Every interview guest will be a person who runs his or her life and conducts his or her business in a way congruent with these principles. And you'll see how and why they are so successful, not just in their businesses, though certainly that, but in the other aspects of their lives that are also so important. Again, I thank you so much for joining me. So as we look at the term go-giver, sure, I explained it briefly, but does it seem to you that being a go-giver is the opposite of being a go-getter? Well, it isn't. It's not the opposite at all. What is the opposite of a go-giver? We'll cover that in our thought of the day. Then, for our interview segment, who better to have on this first episode than my brilliant co-author of the book, John David Mann. We'll ask John to share an example or two of people in his life who he feels embody the message that is the theme of this show. We'll also learn about an entrepreneurial venture of his when he was just 17 years old and actually founded a high school. Really? Yep, you'll want to hear about this. That and more on today's show. You know how from the time you were young, you were told to go out there and be a go-getter? Well, turns out that was excellent advice. Are you surprised to hear me say that? (laughs) From the moment our book, The Go-Giver, was published, we've been asked if we're saying that being a go-getter is now not a good thing to be. Actually, being a go-getter is a great thing to be. It's a terrific thing to be. We love go-getters. Why? Well, because go-getters get things done. They take action. And you know, we all know, that a person can have the best thoughts, the most fantastic ideas, and the greatest of intentions. But unless action is put into the mix, nothing is going to happen. It simply cannot happen. So we love go-getters. The neat thing is there's no natural division between a go-getter and a go-giver. Many go-getters are also go-givers, and every go-giver is also a go-getter. Actually, the opposite of a go-giver, then, is not a go-getter. The opposite of a go-giver is a go-taker. That person who feels almost entitled, if you will, to take, 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 without having added any value to the person, to the process, to the situation. And we all know people like that, and they can be good, well-meaning people. 
However, typically, they're continually frustrated by the fact that they never seem to obtain the kind of success they think they deserve. And even those times when they do, it tends to be short-lived because it hasn't been built on a proper foundation. And ironically enough, they usually think that everyone else is naive. In the story, Joe starts out as a frustrated go-getter. And he was frustrated, but not because he was a go-getter. If you recall, at the beginning, Joe was very much a go-taker. He was a nice guy, but it was all about him, his quotas, his deadlines, and who owes what to him. As he met Pindar and the other mentors and, and learned about shifting his focus from himself to others, suddenly his attitude, his relationships, and his results began to change. Being a go-getter's a great thing, and we want people to be go-getters and go-givers, just not go-takers. When we talk about a go-giver, we're simply talking about that man or woman who has learned, or who perhaps intuitively knew, that it's that person who can shift their focus, who can take their eyes off of themselves and focus on adding value to the other person who accomplishes the most. So be both a go-getter, a person of action, and a go-giver, a person whose focus is on bringing value to others. Yes, be a go-getter and a go-giver, just not a go-taker. Are you a paid professional speaker or would like to become one? Perhaps you've attained success as a CEO, a manager, or leader, or have had a fantastic career in sales and now want to share your wisdom with others and from the stage. Apply to become a member of our team of certified Go-Giver speakers where you'll have access to and be fully trained on my materials from my close to 30 years in this business. You'll also learn how to market and sell yourself as a paid professional speaker. If you can see yourself sharing with audiences ranging from 50 to 15,000 and would like to earn a great income while doing what you love and really making a difference, then get more information by visiting www.gogiverspeaker.com. GoGiverSpeaker.com. If you like what you see, apply and begin the conversation, and let's see if we're a match. And of course, today being our very first episode, we have with us my awesome and amazing co-author of The Go-Giver, John David Mann. But this is far from his only book. He's the co-author of a number of New York Times bestsellers, his latest, Among Heroes, with former Navy SEAL Brandon Webb. He also publishes a fantastic blog, which you can find over at John David Mann with two N's, JohnDavidMann.com. Welcome, my friend and brother. Hello there. Hey, John, I mentioned earlier in the show that you actually founded a private high school at the ripe old entrepreneurial age of 17. You've got to tell us about that first. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. When you say that, I, I, I picture ivy-colored brick walls and, you know, a very prestigious private institution. <laughs> it wasn't exactly like that. Uh, so, sure, sure. Uh, so, here, here is in the short version. Here's what happened. So, I was 17 years old, and uh, a handful of friends and I were disaffected teenagers. And we weren't disaffected with life or disaffected with society. We were disaffected in, in particular with our schools. Uh, we were all going to public schools and they weren't great schools. And, and we just, we weren't learning a lot. And it just, it just felt like we were kind of putting in time and punching a clock and, and, and our lives were just draining like, like uh, sand through the hourglass. And we weren't really, we had hunger. 
we wanted to learn. We wanted to do stuff. <laughs> so uh, we said, hey, what if we had our own school? And for some reason, like the bumblebee who flies because it doesn't know that it's physically impossible for it to do that, the thought that we couldn't do that never entered our minds. We just said, yeah, that would be cool. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would be cool. <laughs> and so we set about on weekends, because we were all in school five days a week, we set about having meetings at each other's houses talking about what would this be like? How would we do this? What would a day look like? Were parents involved in this too or just, just right now the kids? At first, parents were just kind of looking at this saying, that's interesting. Huh. Um, but we had a handful of us had extraordinarily supportive parents who became involved, not directly as in doing the planning and spearheading anything, but involved as our support system very early on. Oh, and that's helpful. really why this happened. Okay. So, so uh, okay. So how did you do it? I mean, did you, was it, you know, and this is now, you know, this is of course a, a, a few years ago. Uh, oh, five, or six, five or six years ago at least. Yeah. So what was the process? Did you have to officially drop out of school first? I don't even think there was. Uh, okay. Here's what we did. So we were all about, about my age, 17. Uh, I was the only one who dropped out and I, I sort of uh, t took a, an ad hoc position as spearhead, I guess, among, among the students, among the teenagers. And we just kept meeting and developing our plan and saying, how would we do this? And at some point we decided, you know what, we need an adult. We need a director that we can work with mm -hmm. who will be kind of the voice of the school to the outside world. And we had already by that time kind of got our idea around what we wanted the school to be like. We wanted to be a school where, uh, you know, at that time, the free school movement and alternative school movement had kind of a reputation, deserved or not. Uh, among many adults as students who just wanted to rebel and drop out and kind of do nothing and smoke grass and whatever. But that was not us. We wanted to have a, a school that was not, not heavily structured, that didn't have any, quote, requirements, but that provided the opportunity for us to study mm. whatever we wanted to study. We wanted to study a lot. And I'll tell you about how that ended up when we actually opened the following year. Um, but so we, we began interviewing for the position of director. Uh. I love that. Uh, it was a full-time position. The salary we set at zero. And <laughs> we, we began interviewing through connections through our parents. Uh, we began attracting extraordinary, fascinating individuals who came to interview with us for the position, position of director. I think we interviewed five, six, maybe seven. I don't recall. But a handful of unusual amazing adults, and we eventually selected one. His name is Julian F. Thompson. He is a novelist. He wasn't a novelist then, but he is now. Uh, he's still around. You can find him on the internet if you poke around. Um, and he came and joined us. He lived in one of our houses at the parents' uh, whim and, and discretion and, and uh, was a boarder for months. And I would go over to his place in the morning. I would drive over and I would find him already at eight o'clock in the morning with at his typewriter with a, sh a brown paper shopping bag at his feet full of finished typed address stamped envelopes, letters he'd written looking for funds. He was fundraising. Um, he set about fundraising, looking for ways of support, looking for a building. And long story short, we opened the following September uh, with 50 students in a, a building that, that gave us uh, its use for the year. We had a core staff of three who were paid, including the director, and we had volunteer faculty from among the parent body, everybody from uh, 
you know, I, IBM computer whizzes to uh, my dad, who was a you know PhD musicologist, mm-hmm. my mom, who, all, all kinds of, uh, of of subjects. And we had at one point in that first year, we had in one semester, we we set this the year into five semesters of I think five weeks each. And at one point, we had fifty students and fifty six different course offerings. Wow. And it was my job. It fell to me to take a huge piece of paper and work out the schedule for the week. And I managed to, this is the hardest thing I think I ever did, to work out the schedule so we had all 50 students in all of their 56 classes meeting in different locations all through the week with carpools and nothing conflicting. And I still had one day off with my girlfriend. So it was <laughs> What a fantastic story. You know, I had known <laughs> about it, but I didn't know it to that detail. So I'm actually finding, uh, finding out about a lot of this for the first time. Uh, that's a fantastic entrepreneurial story. And, you know, when we um, look at the go-giver and we look at the five laws, a lot of it has to do with maybe having an idea. Sure, it's that shift in focus. It's looking for ways to find value, to provide value to others, to the, to the world in a sense, uh, is what you're doing. So who to you, and this is where I want to go with this, when you think of people we would call go-givers, right? The go-givers of the world, and it can be anyone, and that's the, the, the neat thing. Who are some or, or what are some of the examples that come to mind for you? You know, that's interesting how you led up to that, too, because to me, you know, one of the core ideas of the go-giver, not that we say this in the book, but is it's this idea that uh, that accomplishments of tremendous value first take place in thought, yeah. in, the, in, in the idea that you have. Um, it's like the law of influence. Well, you know, influence doesn't come from having money, having position, having power, having a resume, having accomplishments. All those things come after. Influence comes from your mindset, from, from your heart, from how you decide to behave. You know, we, we talk about this in the book. Uh, and so to me, go-givers are people uh, who, who, in addition to being of generous spirit, who, who put other people first, they're also people who accomplish extraordinary things, even though it might look impossible. And so uh, examples of go-givers in my life. Oh, gosh, there's just so many. And, you know, anybody can be a go-giver. It, it, it's, it's got nothing to do with position or wealth or influence or any of those things. Anybody can can uh, can put somebody else's interests first. I'll give you an example. My dad. He's one of the most influential go-givers in my life. My father was a very busy professional. He had a very rich, full career uh, with multiple facets. He was a musicologist. He was a teacher. He was an author. He was a conductor. He had a lot going on. He had an office in his home, and he was always working. He wasn't a workaholic. He just loved what he did. After dinner, he would pad upstairs to his study and he would work. But, and here's the point, I would go knock on his door because I wanted to tell him something, ask him something, share something inane or absurd. You know, I was five years old, what have you. I, I, I don't remember once ever in my life him saying, listen, could you come back later? No matter what he was doing, unless he was on the phone and then I wouldn't interrupt. No matter what he was doing, he always would say, what is it, my Johnny? He would always break. He always had time for me. He always made that time. And, and he and my mom together gave me these indescribable, ineluctable, incalculable gifts of uh, believing in me, always having time for me, always being supportive of me, even when it, it looked impossible. Um, Which you've now been able to share with the world. And you've been able to spread their influence through you and touch so many lives. 
uh, they're, you know, they're both gone from the physical plane, but boy, yes, their influence lives with us still. Um, uh, so I, I know we're, we're pressed for time. Let me give you another example, Di- totally different sphere. Um, my wife, I, I regard my wife as one of the most giving people I've ever met. It's, um, and, and she, she gives in, in the, in the littlest, simplest ways. Um, she tells me, Every day, how much she appreciates me. She tells me every day how grateful she is for August 8th, 2008, the day we got married. She does just these little things. She brings me tea or she does this for me. She closes the door when she knows that I'm on a call like I am right now. Um, You know, it's the gestures, the little things, even more than the huge gifts of life. Here's another another go-giver, totally different sphere. Not somebody you might think of as a go-giver, but one of my favorite examples, Rodney Dangerfield. Now, why do I say Rodney Dangerfield, who don't get no respect? <laughs> you know? Rodney Dangerfield is known to the world as this funny comedian, this guy with the affect and the bulging eyes and perspiring and the nervous twitches mm-hmm. and so forth. To comedians, he was the most generous, supportive, wonderful, unselfish man who ever lived. Dangerfield spent the first 10 years of his career clinically depressed, failing, struggling, got divorced, he married his wife, they got divorced again, his life was a failure. And at some point, he was selling aluminum siding during the day and struggling to rebuild, rebuild his failed career at night. At some point, he, he found the formula that allowed, that allowed him to get a toehold in success, and he immediately began to champion other comedians. Yes, he did. Um, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, he got Jim Carrey started, Adam Sandler, uh, uh, Tim Allen, Roseanne Barr, Jerry Seinfeld, all these comedians and a ton more whose names you know. You talk to them about about, uh, how they got their start, they will all mention Rodney Dangerfield and that he was just the most. One guy said, Don Marrera said that he was he was one of those rare performers who was never threatened by somebody else's success. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the mark of a go-giver in career. It's so easy for, for professionals to be threatened by their colleagues. This is a big world. There is enough success to go around for everybody. Dangerfield understood that and he lived that. And that, that to me, that's being a go-giver. And all three examples you brought up, your, your parents, uh, your wife, Anna, Rodney Dangerfield, all very successful people in all the different senses in, uh, in which success can be measured. Exactly. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, John, thank you for being the first guest on the Go-Giver podcast. Of course, I hope you'll be coming back all the time and and uh, always love speaking with you. I always learn so much and, and you have been such an amazing blessing as a co-author who is really, you know, the lead writer, the lead storyteller, and also as a friend and really someone who's become a brother. And uh, uh, we just, just thank you for being you. Man, this partnership has changed my life. I'm back to you. John is so amazing, brilliant and humble both. And we learn from John that anyone at any time and at any age can take action, provide exceptional value to the lives of many, and make a huge difference. So let's ask ourselves, what one thing can we do today to provide value to others? It doesn't have to be something different like founding a school before you're 18. It might be simply doing with excellence what you do best or being empathetic to a friend or customer, or finding a way to make a coworker feel appreciated. What will you do today to provide that kind of value? 
If you received value from this episode, please post a review on iTunes. Your review will also help others to more easily find this show, and I'd appreciate that greatly. Well, that's all for our very first episode. I sure hope you enjoyed it, and you'll come back and join us again. The Go-Giver podcast is brought to you by thegogiver.com. Visit www.thegogiver.com and get chapter one of our book and check out everything on the site you find of interest. You can join the Go-Giver Ambassadors page on Facebook, get information on becoming a certified Go-Giver speaker, connect with John David Mann on his personal website as well as on Facebook and Twitter, and the same for me, of course. It's all right there at thegogiver.com. Stop on by. Hey, thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, I'm Bob Berg, wishing you a great day.